Hello, everyone, and welcome to this podcast edition of the October 4th, 2018 Restorative Justice on the Rise Dialogue with Joe Brummer on Trauma-Informed Restorative Practices. We hope you enjoy this podcast, and given that Restorative Justice on the Rise is Creative Commons and open source based as a public dialogue and connection and education platform, we hope you'll pass it along. Please check out Restorative Justice on the Rise on the web at restorativejusticeontherise.org. And for more information on the work of Joe Brummer, go to joebrummer.com. Thank you so much for your participation in our dialogue series, and we look forward to seeing you live next time. Good day, everyone, and welcome. I'm your host, Molly Rowan Leach, and this is Restorative Justice on the Rise. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today with Joe Brummer. And of course, the topic today is centered around trauma-informed restorative practices. Um, I want to just say a few words about restorative justice on the rise. We took a bit of a hiatus um, in testing out educational platforms and webinars, and we're so glad to be back. And we're interested in hearing from you on topics as well as speakers that you might like to hear from. This series was founded in 2011, so we're in our seventh year now of offering a public platform for um, conversations with with key way showers, leaders, um, including youth voices, uh, all across the board in the field of restorative practices and peace building. So again, a warm welcome to you today, whether you're live or on the future podcast. Um, we do feature iTunes podcasts and Spotify also has our dialogues, which is great. Restorative Justice on the Rise had four years' worth of private funding and grant funding and now is looking for um, additional support through grants and donations. So if you are so inclined and you value what we're doing here, please visit restorativejusticeontherise.org and provide any amount of a donation to our work. Thank you. So without further ado, I'd like to just share a few words about today's guest speaker, Joe Brummer. Uh, I'm so impressed and delighted to have him. Um, I'm, I'm deeply moved by what brought him into this work. So today we're gonna start out with a little bit of conversation with him about um, how he got started. And then we're going to go into a couple slides, talk about his work in Connecticut in school districts. And also, we really want to open it up today to you uh, and make sure that you're an integral part of the conversation. So please know that as far as this platform is concerned, if you're live with us today, you can submit questions from the webcast as well as you can raise your hand here in this uh, virtual room. So if you want to raise your hand to ask a question, if something um, feels really um, pertinent to you in, a mo in the moment, you just need to press um, star two to raise your hand. And please, um, warm I warmly invite you to do that throughout today's session. Star two to raise your hand. Also, again, you may submit a question through the Q&A box 
which is in the window pane next to the webcast that uh, you may be viewing. There are slides today, like I mentioned, so if you are on the call and you also want to view the webcast, just go back to the email uh, that you received that gives you the link to view the window pane for the webcast as well, okay? So I hope that's clear, and again, welcome everyone. Um, a few words about Joe, uh, just to kind of premise where we're going today. Joe has been a victim of two separate violent anti-gay hate crimes and what began as a personal healing response to the trauma. He has transformed into professional involvement in the field of community and restorative justice. In 2006, he began his work with the Institute for the Study and Practice of Nonviolence during a training of trainers in Kingian nonviolence. Then in 2007, he served as a victim advocate on the Juvenile Restorative Justice Advisory Board for the Community Mediation Center of Rhode Island. In 2008, he attended the International Intensive Training on NVC, Nonviolent Communication, with Marshall Rosenberg in Albuquerque, New Mexico. From 2010 until 2014, Joe was the Associate Director of a Community Mediation Center in Connecticut, where he oversaw juvenile and adult criminal mediation and dialogue programs that involved victim-offender and offender-offender dialogues. Also in this role, he supported school-based mediation programs, mediation for the juvenile review boards in Hamden and New Haven, Connecticut, and provided hundreds of trainings in nonviolent communication. In 2014, Joe participated in a three-week three program excuse me, in India called Teaching for Peace, an Indian immersion program in practical nonviolence. He has attended restorative justice training with Dominic Barter from Restorative Circles and the International Institute of Restorative Practices, otherwise known as IIRP, and the Victim Offender Mediation Association, VOMA. Overall, since 2010, Joe has actively helped schools implement peer mediation programs and school-wide restorative practices, also known as SWRPs. As a private consultant beginning in 2015, Joe has designed a trauma-informed approach of restorative practices and infused this model in Connecticut schools. In 2017, he completed a six-year term on the Board of Directors for the National Association for Community Mediation. He has presented on restorative justice nationally, including Washington, Massachusetts, and Connecticut. Most recently, Joe presented on trauma-informed restorative practices at the first annual Creating Trauma-Sensitive Schools Conference in Washington, D.C., he also presented on conflict and peace building in 2012 and 2013 for the annual International Leadership Training Program, a global intergenerational forum sponsored by the United Nations Education, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, UNESCO, Chair and Institute of Comparative Human Rights at the University, excuse me, he is also Chair of the Institute of Comparative Human Rights at the University of Connecticut. 
He's clocked hundreds of hours at the mediation table facilitating in a wide variety of areas, including workplace disputes, tenant and landlord conflicts, neighborhood disputes, civil lawsuits, and victim offender mediation. The list really goes on. Um, Joe has done so much to give back to the field, and I'm so excited to and honored to have you here, Joe, and um, just a very warm welcome to you today. Thank you so much for being here. Happy to be here. Well, I just um, I wondered if you might be willing to start out, Joe, um, by sharing of course, what I mentioned in your bio, which, uh, again, can be found at joebrummer.com. Um, please go to Joe's website. There's a lot of great information there. Um, would you be willing to start us off with the story about how you how came to I this work? Story. Sure. Yes, please. And so I, I really came to this work uh, not knowing this is where I'd end up, really. But in when I was uh, about to... 19, 20 years old, I was the victim of an anti-gay gay bashing. And uh, a bunch of guys jumped me, beat the living crap out of me, and left me in a river for dead. And you, I kind of woke up, you know, in the days later with these internal dilemmas about, you know, do you, you know, do I hang on to anger and revenge and those feelings, or do I start thinking about what does compassion look like? What does empathy look like? And so I did the first of those for a while, which is that, you know, revenge, anger, how could someone do this to me thing? And it proved to only, the only person it was hurting was me. And it wasn't in good ways. And so I started to move towards these ideas of like, right, what, what would nonviolence look like? Why do people do this stuff? And how do we promote more nonviolence, more peace thinking? And so I didn't really know what any of that meant for a few years. About 10 years to the date of that event, I was gay bashed again. This time in when I was living in Providence, Rhode Island, I was coming out of a downtown Providence club and uh, was body slammed to the ground by some some young men running down the street yelling nasty things about gay people. And, you know, again, I wake up the next day with a broken collarbone and head injuries and my brain going, could this really happen twice? And I sort of made this commitment to myself that I wanted to do something in the world that involved promoting nonviolence and promoting peace and living a life that is as nonviolent as I possibly could do. And so I started shunning violent TV and violent movies and, and looking at nonviolence and trying to figure out why people use violence. And, and a part of that was this journey to becoming a nonviolence trainer. And so there was a, I saw an advertisement to become a trainer with the Institute for the Study and Practice of Nonviolence in Providence. And so it was this 64-hour training on on becoming a Kingian nonviolence trainer, Martin Luther King Jr. Six Principles and Six Steps of Nonviolence, and we were going into schools and teaching that to kids and to adults, and it felt like it was missing something, um, that there were skills we weren't teaching them that they needed, and somehow that stumbled me into taking a mediation training, to becoming a mediator. To, to falling in love with mediation. I love community mediation as a field. 
And so falling in love with that work, and then it's just grown from there. I got introduced to Marshall Rosenberg's work. The Mediation Center asked me if I would be a victim advocate on their restorative justice advisory board. And I was like, I don't even know what restorative justice is. And so VOMA came and did this uh, victim offender mediation training, and I took that training and got introduced to restorative justice. This was back in, like, I don't know, 2007 or 2000. It was probably 2007 or 2008. And so I got introduced to restorative justice as a concept, and, you know, a few years later I get this job to be the associate director of a community mediation center where I end up doing you know, victim offender mediations, offender offender mediations, all as part of this criminal court program. And so it just, and then I got asked to go into schools, which I, I didn't even like school as a kid. So the idea that I'd return to one seemed absurd to me. But I started going into schools and working with faculty and staff, setting up peer mediation programs, and then introducing the concepts of restorative justice. And it's just somehow spiraled into that's now what I do. <laughs> all of that coming from my quest to understand violence and nonviolence. Mm. It's a long, strange trip. <laughs> <laughs> mm. I I so honor that you ha- had the courage to take what must have been an extraordinarily difficult trauma of your own and turn it around um, for the better. For and and not only just for yourself, but for um, you know, to give back to, to com- the communities that you're giving back to, um, which are not only in Connecticut, but there's a wide range of people that are taking your trainings now, I understand, from all across the country. And per- do, do you travel overseas yet? <laughs> I say yet. <laughs> um, I haven't as of yet, but, I, you know, I'm always up for, for a trip. And, and so I just okay. I actually recently just got back from doing some restorative justice training in, in Maui. I was invited there to, oh, to come and work with a school in Maui. And, and that was, you know, I wasn't complaining when anyone said, will you come to Maui? <laughs> <laughs> so happy to travel. Well, I just want to, th- uh, before I um, come back to you, Joe, I want to thank everyone. If you're just joining us, um, it's so wonderful to see everybody signing up um, for this this dialogue. Um, we have people from Canada and all over the United States. Uh, sometimes we get people coming in from um, South America. I know the time zone's a little difficult for for those of you living in you know other parts of the world, but that's why we have a podcast. It's an um, evergreen um, platform that we have here. So thank you for par- your participation today. Again, as I mentioned earlier, press star two. If you'd like to raise your hand and ask a live question in our virtual room together today, you can also submit a question on the webcast. So we'll be checking those periodically throughout our dialogue with Joe. So Joe, um, you said something really profound about, uh, I mean, it seems like a no-brainer maybe to some of us, um, but why do people use violence and also how what, what have you discovered? And also, how is trauma deeply intermingled with um, the end result being violence? Hmm. Oh, so what have mouthful, I learned? I, know. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know that I've ever really completely figured out, you know, why, why do some people enjoy violence while some people 
you know, are drawn to give and, and to to be compassionate. Um, I th- think that people use violence because I think there are two reasons that seem to come to me. I, and, and I'm sure there's somebody that has a better answer than me. But what seems to come to me is that one, violence meets our needs, and you know, when we think that behavior is driven by needs, you know, anything we do for better or for worse is somehow meeting needs for us. And it may not be the best strategy, but it seems to work for us. And I think couple that with the fact that we're in a society and a culture that celebrates violence at every turn. I mean, the the number one blockbusting movies of the last 10 years have mostly been laced in violence and things exploding and, and people celebrating the bad guy getting what he quote-unquote deserves. And so it's created this culture of violence. Um, and, you know, you see it get replicated by kids. And so I think that's become... It's become the strategy for safety. It's become the strategy for for entertainment. It's become the strategy for power. And so I think the reason we keep going back to violence is because it meets our needs. It might not be the best strategy, but we keep going there. And I think what I've what? learned... Uh, what's that? No, I just... I, I believe it was Marshall Rosenberg that said um, violence is a result of unmet needs, Right. Mm-hmm. Is that about about right? I, you know, Marshall. I think he's, he had a great quote that said, "All violence stems from people being tricked into believing that other people are the source of their pain and therefore deserve to be punished." And so, you know, one of Marshall's beliefs, and it's one that I share, is that you know, violence is on the planet as a form of punishment. That pretty much any form of violence you see on the planet can be deserve can be put back to people thinking that other people deserve it. And so most of it goes back to people trying to punish each other. Um, as long as we believe other people cause our pain, revenge becomes a, a logical next step. And so, so much of the violence I think we have on the planet, or at least most of that I can see, is other people trying to make other people pay for their past perceived wrongdoings. And I think that word perceived is important, that it it doesn't matter that people really did or didn't do something, it's what we think they did. And, you know, it makes us justify the violence because people deserved it. So we learn better. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting also to consider um, the trauma that's visited upon us. You know, most of us have had some form of trauma in our lives, and the choice that that we get to make. Um, and not all of us do get to consciously make a choice. Um, it's like we kind of live on rote because we've been so traumatized. And um, are unable to pull ourselves out of it. And that's why we need each other. And that's why I just so admire the work that you are doing very specifically in trauma-informed restorative practices. And I guess that leads to my next question for you. Um, Can you actually give us (laughs) some form of definition that's, you know, your own or a definition that resonates with you of what what are trauma informed restorative practices yeah i i don't have a perfect definition as of yet and i think one of the things that's happened at least i see in schools 
is that there's this movement out there to create trauma-informed schools. And separately of that, there's a movement to create restorative justice schools. And then there are separately ones to doing mindfulness, to doing uh, collaborative and proactive solutions, which is the work of Ross Green. And we have these separate little silos that we use to do this work. And for me, maybe it's the experience of how I got here. Maybe it's the books I read. I have, I have no idea how it works for me that I can't separate out doing restorative justice work and being trauma-informed. And, and so those things have to come linked together or we're going to circle people up and not be mindful of what they bring to the circle in their heart and the things they've been through. But especially for kids, we have to be really mindful that so many of the behaviors we see coming from kids stem from their trauma. And we think of their behavior as either um, you know, good or bad, on task, off task. And, and I want people to start thinking more about that behavior you're circling up as actually being coping mechanisms and communication about the trauma people are carrying. I think we need in schools to understand that when we look at the prevalence of trauma, you know, I think one of the statistics I've seen from the original ACEs study, which is the Adverse Childhood Experiences study on trauma, is it was something like one in eight people have an ACE score of, of at least a four. You know, that's pretty high. That's, that's the prevalence of trauma. More people are walking the planet right now with trauma than there are people who don't have trauma. And so if we're going to do restorative justice work, it's got to be through that lens that very often the motivator and or the or the you know the heart of what people have done or how we've caused harm goes back to trauma. And so in order for us to heal that trauma and think about addressing the harm, it's got to be done through the lens of the fact that there is trauma and that people's fight or flight stress mechanisms kick in when we don't pull that stuff off properly. I mean, look at our, our political conversations right now. And we have these hearing going, you know, the hearings for, for Judge Kavanaugh. You know, whether you're for or against this guy is irrelevant to the fact that millions of women are watching this story and being triggered in their trauma. That's, that's actually a... Um, the fact that it's getting press and media right now is an aside from the fact that's a daily occurrence. We put kids in school, they get triggered on their trauma on a regular basis. We just call it bad behavior. But it, that's not necessarily what it is. And our day-to-day -day lives trigger our histories. And then if you add the fact that there are populations uh, you know, that, that live in this country who are traumatized groups that have historical trauma. And so people of color are, are coming with, with a historical trauma, intergenerational trauma of how their group has been treated. And so Native Americans, again, trauma. Gay men, trauma. I mean, I, 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 I'm surprised how many people don't recognize or want to talk about the fact that any gay man that lived through the late 80s and early 90s, it's impossible for them as a group not mm -hmm. to have trauma. Hundreds of thousands of gay mm -hmm. men died around us 
with a president at the time who couldn't even say the word AIDS. And Mm -hmm. what kind of trauma was that for an entire group of people? And so if we don't start addressing trauma in the work that we do in schools and the work that we do in our communities and as we do the work in, in, in restorative justice, I don't know that you can do restorative justice without being trauma-informed. And mm-hmm. I urge anybody doing mm-hmm. this work who doesn't know about ACEs and who doesn't understand trauma, go get trained in trauma. Like we need to do this work from a trauma-informed, equitable lens. How's that so, thank, <laughs> thank you. Um, I know this is boiling it down and maybe oversimplifying it a little bit, but when when you you're sharing, I'm I'm curious to to hear from you. I know we're going to talk about schools, uh, really ground level and specific in a moment, but um, how does one know if one is you know, has put on that lens and embodied that lens um, as opposed to not walking in, as as you said so beautifully, walking in to circle up mindful of trauma. How, how do we know if we've made that shift? Hmm. That's a great question. What does it look like? What's it look like? I, I think if we're walking into circle and we're mindful about the stress response, of the people in that circle and really primarily walking into that circle, understanding our own stress response. And so if you're the circle keeper or the facilitator of the conference and you're walking in with your own triggers and your own traumas, let's be aware of that. Let's walk in recognizing when and mindful of our own body of how we recognize when we're triggered or when our trauma has been brought up. Especially when we're the circle keeper. When we're triggered and we're and our trauma mm-hmm. is showing, it's going to trigger the other people in the circle because they're looking mm-hmm. to us to mm-hmm. guide them. And so it's the same thing with teachers. When a teacher is stressed out, it's going to trigger out kids who have trauma. And so I think that trauma-informed piece is walking into the room That doesn't mean you have to walk around with kid gloves. It means you have to walk around mindful of people's stress response, their fight, flight, freeze, faint responses. And that Mm -hmm. when we recognize, you know, it's that, you know, in the trauma-informed world, the the saying goes, you know, it's not what's wrong with people, it's what happened to them. It's knowing that everybody comes to the circle with a story and a history, and it's beyond that circle. And that they themselves may not even know they have trauma. They may not even know that they Mm -hmm, trigger, mm -hmm. that their fight-or-flight systems are engaged, that their anger is actually their fight-or-flight stuff trying to keep them safe. And so I think when we're doing this work, I guess the way that we know we're doing it, quote-unquote, right, which I I don't love that word, but a way of thinking of it, you know, (laughs) the way that we're doing it trauma-informed is do we have a focus on regulation, and co-regulation, and primarily our own. Like, are we self-aware about our own stuff? And have we done the work? You know, it's the same if you want to address, you know, if you're going to address equity, you've got to do your own work. And if you're going to address trauma, you've got to do your own work. Like, I couldn't do this work on trauma. I couldn't even stand in front of a, a faculty or staff of a school and talk about childhood trauma if I haven't dealt with my own. 
And so I think we know we're trauma-informed when we've been doing, the, doing our work because I think that's so big a part of, of restorative justice. If, you know, if the, if the idea of restorative justice is healing, you know, start with thyself. <laughs> What's that old saying, you know, heal or heal thyself? Mm-hmm. If you're not working on yourself, then, then I don't know, how do you do this work without causing more harm? Mm-hmm. Which which brings uh, the question around um, this part of our conversation, the the lens, the shifting the lens, um, the mind, you know, being mindful um, in a in a way with oneself and others, and might also include the possibility of befriending, maybe not befriending at first, maybe just approaching trauma, our own trauma. Um, trauma in others in a different light. Mm-hmm. It it appears in especially in Western culture that we have a real um, hate hate relationship with our own trauma, or maybe it's wrapped in fear. Um, what what do you think about that? Uh, we have a hate hate relationship with our negative feelings, mm-hmm. so we try to get rid of them, and so. You know, if you're feeling angry, you want to get rid of the anger. If you're feeling, you know, irritable, you want to get rid of your irritability. I mean, we're we have a whole Western culture of people that are afraid to feel negative feelings, and, and I think sometimes we're afraid to feel positive feelings too. But I definitely think we're we're just afraid of our negative feelings, and so we don't allow ourselves to truly feel them. And what's interesting is, you know, one of those lessons I've learned from mindfulness is that. You know, it's really interesting when you actually fully feel your anger, it doesn't take you over. We're just so scared it might, like, we might lose control if we feel our negative feelings that they actually control us. The funny thing is, is if you actually learn to sort of be present to the feelings, to experience the feelings, and feel them truly and fully, that might mean you go sit in a corner and cry, but it means that in 10 minutes after that, you're going to be good. Like, it's going to be okay. They're just feelings. Mm -hmm. They come and they go. Mm -hmm. And we're so afraid of them. And I think it's one of the messages Marshall Rosenberg had about really truly feeling your feelings and about really having a vocabulary of those feelings. I I think the same is true in in restorative justice and socio-emotional learning and trauma-informed care. It's, It's how do we actually learn to be present to and... I, I've heard the term befriend often too. I mean, how do you befriend your your negative feelings and truly fully feel them? And it goes back to that old saying, you hurt people, hurt people. Well, if you're hurting, how about we address the fact you're hurting? But the person that has to address that first is you. And so, I mean, it was one of my lessons in my 20s is that, you know, I was I was a hurt person who in turn was hurting other people and mostly myself. And so, you know, when is your wake-up call for any of us, really? When's the wake-up call that our hurts are, are hurting others? And and generally, especially, we're hurting ourselves even more. And so that's why I think mm-hmm. walking into this work, we really have to be conscious of and mindful of, of, of our traumas, of our negatives, of our stress, mm-hmm. so that we... Mm-hmm. And also remove our own shame, too, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Excuse me. 
the shame piece is big. Um, I, I want to take just a moment to thank everyone for being with us today. We're talking with Joe Brummer, and you are listening to Restorative Justice on the Rise. This is a public platform for you. And so that being said, please, if you have a question for Joe um, or just want to jump into the dialogue today, press star 2 if you're calling in from a phone. You also have a chance to submit a web question through the webcast pane. So please do so. Um, please check out Joe's website also at joebrummer.com if you haven't already. And also check out the podcasts and the resources, uh, including a national map. We're trying to make it into a world map um, for programs to list what they're up to um, and to list their contact information and program dot oh. org. Okay. So, go ahead, Joe. Sorry. No, nothing. I, you disappeared and cut out for a second, and I was like, "Uh oh." Oh, okay. <laughs> but then you came back. I'm back. Um, so, so Joe, I know you have um, so much to share, and we have a half an hour left. Um, I'd like to go into talking uh, a little bit more on the ground level about um, your work specific to the state of Connecticut. You yeah. mentioned that you had a statewide circle. And then I'd really like to, to talk specifics around Connecticut schools, and we're going to go into the slideshow at that point as well. So um, can you share a little bit more about what's going on up there in the Northeast? Yeah, Connecticut's actually pretty exciting when it comes to restorative justice, and I don't even really think it's on the map as much as it's here. But we've, you know, the state's really done an overhaul and a really thoughtful, mindful uh, approach to especially juvenile justice. So there's been a lot of changes here around juvenile justice. We've recently worked towards closing our juvenile lockups um, and, and starting to phase some of that stuff out so we can start addressing kids who, you know, get involved in the system more restoratively and more and with more of a trauma-informed lens. And one of the places that we're bringing that in is in, in education. I, there's a really big movement in the state to move toward restorative schools and the state itself, our, our state Department of Education, actually um, has restorative justice training that's free and open to anyone in the in the state that wants it. And so people can sign up to go to a two-day um, restorative justice training with a consultant in the state. Uh, and and so and then there, you know, throughout the state, we have pockets of districts that have restorative justice coordinators that are doing restorative justice training. Uh, the state itself is pushing every district to get people trained in restorative justice. Um, so there's a, re there's a really interesting movement here of, of people moving in this direction, along with districts themselves trying to move in the direction of trauma-informed. And so I, I, I started working in, in the education part of this in I mean, I started doing it when I was the associate director of a community mediation center. And then when I left the community mediation center, it was January 2015. I left the community mediation center and said, I'm just going to go and become a consultant. And I'm going to work with schools, and I'm going to you know, keep doing this work, and I'll keep my mediation practice on the side, which I'm actually sitting in the office of my mediation practice. And, and so I do divorce and family mediation on the side, because I will always love mediation and never want to not mediate. I love, I love walking people through conflict because it doesn't have to hurt. 
And so in the school sense of this, I, you know, a bunch of schools that I worked with when I worked in the nonprofit world stayed with me and had me keep coming back in and, and teaching them about restorative justice and teaching them nonviolent communication. And, and then I was learning about trauma-informed stuff. And the more I learned about each of these things and, and adding the mindfulness pieces, the more I couldn't disconnect them. And so I started, Hartford Public Schools had, had come to me uh, several times and invited me to come work with them to do restorative practices, but the plans that they would come with were those typical sort of restorative justice in a box things where we train everybody and boom, everybody's trained, we should be restorative now. But that's, that's not how this works. And so I didn't want anything to do with it. And I said, yeah, there's, mm-hmm. there's consultants that will do that. Right. It's, not, it's not me. And Hartford just kept coming back. Like a couple months would go by, they'd be back on my on my doorstep, going, "Look, we want you to come work with us." You know what what would it take? And I was like, "Well, you know, if we framed it with less people, less schools, and really made sure that every school has an infrastructure that can support trained restorative people, then that would make sense." And so they came back with this amazing plan, where we were going to form teams at each school, and we would form cohorts. And so we formed the first cohort, which was six schools, and five people from every school came together for a six-day intensive training on restorative practices that included nonviolent communication, work on equity, uh, and work on Ross Green's uh, model, Collaborative and Proactive Solutions. And so it added like all these elements, mindfulness, uh, equity, and, and just deep dive in the six days and then gave each school support time to get consulting on the side to help them, you know, implement these plans. And each year we've added on a new cohort. And so year, and then continued to support the cohorts that were previous. And so at this point, Hartford Public Schools is on their third cohort and uh, still continuing to support each year. We add on five schools every year, and we set up an infrastructure in every school to, to roll this stuff out. And then this past year, uh, really actually in the past couple weeks, um, we've, we were able to secure some new funding. And so instead of just doing one cohort, you know, or doing one new cohort this year, we actually have the funding to do four. And so we're going to take on four new cohorts, which is 20 schools, and then also continue mm-hmm. to support the, the previous 15 schools. So we almost will have the whole district. And it's, it's possible that we'll manage to get the whole district going. As I kept working with Hartford and having some small successes with their schools, and then folks would leave Hartford Public Schools and go to other districts and talk about what we were doing, I ended up being contacted by a few other school districts, and the number kept climbing. And at this point, I have five districts, um, all rolling out restorative practices in exactly the same way. So we form cohorts, we form teams. We and, and what I love about that is the team is actually the people doing the work. I'm just a coach. I, I come in and share what I know about restorative practices, but in each individual right. school. Every individual school comes up with their own three-year rollout plan. And so it's up to them what their obstacles are, what their culture is, who the people in their school are, what resources they have. They come up with a three-year rollout plan that works for them. 
And then my job is just to support them rolling out their plan. And we've replicated this now in about 30 schools. And we're only in our first three years. And so it's, it's, it's starting to have some really great impacts on suspension data and on referral data, although those, I think that's de that's deceiving to look at that data because there are other things. And then we also hired, you know, Martha Brown, the, the infamous author, mm -hmm. author of Creating Restorative Schools. Uh, we hired Martha mm -hmm. to evaluate that six-day training. And so as people Excellent. go through the six-day training, we're pre- and post-testing them. And what we're looking at and what Martha and I are looking at is whether or not we can change attitudes and beliefs. Because you can mm -hmm. give people all the restorative practices you want, but if they use them through a punitive mindset, it's still punitive. And so we need to we need to know that we've changed their lens. And by mm -hmm. by doing Absolutely. the evaluation piece, we're able to look at while the training is happening, what was their starting point, how punitive are they, and then later tailor that training to really address what they need. So at the end, we know we've changed their attitudes and beliefs, that they've gone from punitive to thinking more restoratively, that they've gone from what's wrong with this kid to what happened to this kid. It's it's an amazing way of seeing uh, the work. And so now and it's, it's starting to spread out to other states. What's up? Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. I um, I wanted to mention, for people who may not know who Dr. Martha Brown is, um, she is the author of the extraordinary book, Creating Restorative Schools. She has been a featured guest on Restorative Justice on the Rise most recently this past May, speaking very specifically to the study that um, was done in Oakland and in the Bay Area. And so, Joe, can, can we seg from, um, from this point into your slideshow with the premise, um, if you'd be willing to speak, about what Dr. Brown found, and I'm sure you probably have as well, um, what, what is the importance of Tier 1 practices? And I'm, I'm going to um, go ahead and put, put your first slide up here, okay? Yeah. So, you know, Tier 1, you know, one way of looking at it, like what's our Tier 1, what's our community building stuff? And, and, and when we go into schools, people are like, what is restorative justice? And what is restorative practices? And what are the difference between those two words? And so we try to break some of that down for folks. And there are so and I, maybe it's because the field is new. Maybe it's because a lot of what we're doing in schools has been language borrowed from criminal justice programs that are focused on restorative justice. And I don't think that language works in schools. And so the idea that we're using the same sort of framework of restorative justice in schools that we're using in our criminal systems, I, I'm, not on, I'm not on board with that. And so I wanted to have a new way of defining this. And so on the tier, you know, sort of tier one front end of this, is, as the way I phrase it, is that we need to go in schools and bring people back to the idea that we are responsible for each other. That, you know, what was that old Mother Teresa quote that said, you know, we've forgotten we belong to each other. Like we need to remind people that we're interconnected. And that when one of us is bullying, getting into fights, misbehaving, that yes, that has to do with their behavior, but the rest of us contributed to the community and culture that allowed for that behavior. 
And so I think one of the things that our systems in Western culture is that we think everything is individualized. And so we end up creating cultures that marginalize people into behaviors, and then we blame those behaviors on those people. And that doesn't work. And so part of this restorative justice you know, idea in a school is to recognize that every single member of that community in that school is responsible for the culture of that school. And that when one of us falls short of our community expectations, that the rest of us have a role. So if these two kids are fighting, what, the, what did the rest of us do or not do that let them think they could fight? If one of our students is stealing from other students, what did the rest of us do to put them in a position that they have to steal? Like, I, I want us to understand as we go into a school that we're creating a community where we're, we're actually responsible for each other. So we need to build relationships. We need to build that culture where we actually feel like we take care of each other. On the flip side of that, the sort of the back end, when things do go wrong, we want to be able to walk in and heal them. And doing that by having the responsible party and the people impacted by this harm come together with that community to talk about how things will heal, how things will be repaired. And so, you know, that's kind of what we're doing in schools now. We're using things like respect agreements. Uh, we're using uh, circle process. We're using restorative dialogue. We're, you know, changing the lens teachers have and also then training students in the same material. And so on the front end, it's all about building relationships and then measuring those relationships, like looking at the data and saying, do we have safe and equitable climates and cultures for students to learn in? And so um, one of the ways that we're doing this, and we just kind of talked about this, so if you look at that next slide that's on there that talks about what I just jokingly call RJ in a box, is that one of the things that we're doing on that tier one spot is we're bringing in the mindfulness practices. And so we want you know, every classroom to have a mindfulness practice going. We want every student to have the opportunity for mindfulness. We want every, you know, and we Joe, want I'm sorry to interrupt you. No I'm, I'm so sorry to interrupt you. But just um, for those of us on today who aren't sure what tier one is, can you just remind us um, and that yeah. the study that, that, that Dr. Brown did really shows that Tier 1 is um, pretty critical, um, even more critical in understanding longer-term implementation um, compared to, like, putting out fires, you know, compared to the right. emergency response system. Thank you. Sorry to interrupt you. <laughs> yeah, no worries. So, actually, Dr. Brown's book is a great example of how we looked at um, you know, oftentimes we go into schools, and I used to do this, I, I still go into schools and shadow principals or deans of students. And what we end up doing is run around in the school putting out fires. But the idea of Tier 1 is to use circle process, to use respect agreements, to use restorative dialogue, to create a school that doesn't have fires. Like, in other words, it's one thing to figure out how to put out all the fires. Wouldn't it be better to come up with a school where there aren't fires? And so Tier 1 is about not having fires. It's about building relationships. It's about 
finding ways for people to feel connected and proud of their community, to feel like they're part of something larger than themselves. Um, and we do that through social-emotional learning. We do that through circle. We do that through advisory um, and, and finding ways to create those relationships. Um, and and it, one of the important things is also creating it, through those tier one practices, we also need to make sure that the school itself has a structure that will support tier one stuff. And so maybe that means shaving off a couple of minutes from every class period so we have enough and putting it back at the beginning of the day so there's time for circle. And so oftentimes schools have to rearrange their system to allow for that community building. And once we, you know, once you get that going, you end up not needing a lot of the suspensions and the referrals. And so it's, mm -hmm. it's one thing to lower your suspensions by using other alternatives. It's another thing to lower your suspensions by decreasing the need for, for suspensions. And so I think it's important when we look at suspension data, even that says, oh, we cut our suspension data in half. That always makes me think, well, one, are you just not suspending and doing something else, or did you cut down the need for suspensions? And that's what we want in Tier 1. We want people to cut the need for suspensions by building relationships. That's Tier 1. Um, I think what we have to be careful cool of when climate. we do that work. Yeah, it's school, it's school climate. I think what's happened, though, is we do those things in silos. And I know I talked about this earlier. We've been doing that work in silos. We have multiple programs going on that all do the same thing. But yet we have a committee for the PBIS, a committee for the school climate and culture, a committee for the mindfulness, and those committees never talk to each other. Where the way that I've been doing this work in schools is say, let's do the mindfulness, let's do the um, – Let's do this all at once, and it's more cost-efficient. It doesn't burn out teachers with just another initiative they have to do because we actually make the initiative something that supports them being done by them. So it's not top-down. It's not the district making everyone do this. It's actually teachers making it happen and school, school staff making it happen. Um, one of the ways we did that, if you want to jump ahead a slide, I'll, I'll – these are the practices that I've, we've been combining, which are mindfulness, trauma-informed schools, um, restorative practices, collaborative and proactive solutions, equity and nonviolent communication. We've got an implementation process in Connecticut in the schools where I'm working where we're implementing all six of these things in one implementation. So there's one committee, one team, one, you know, set of data, so we don't have teachers burning out trying to do 20 different things that often contradict each other. So some of these programs, when we do them in silos, actually teach principles and foundations that contradict each other. And so we want to get away from that stuff, and so that teachers have one consistent message, they have one consistent thing to focus on, and that everybody's on the same page. Um, and the way that we've done that is to identify the skills. And so if you move to that slide that shows the skills, we identified, you know, or at least I guess I say we, when I identified five skills that I think are, you know, key in doing restorative practices. 
and also doing mindfulness, also doing collaborative and proactive solutions, also doing equity work. We need empathy skills. We need honest expression. Honest expression replace what many restorative practitioners are teaching as effective statements, which anybody that goes to my website will find I'm not a fan of effective statements. I think most of the time they just sound like blame. Um, and so I've replaced that with Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication model of observation, feeling, need, request. And so we use sort of like I statements on steroids. Um, we really build practitioners' question skills, and so they learn how to sit with a kid and problem solve and ask the right questions that don't make kids feel like they're being grilled. Instead, we want people, we want people to know the difference between drilling down on problems and grilling. And then we do what I call the art of requests. The art of requests is really, and this is that restorative piece. When we say that we're going to have kids repair the harm, what's that look like? How does that happen? What do action plans look like? What does, um, what do, how do we assess and follow up on the plans that we create for kids to, to do that? And how do we problem solve it? And so we're using what most people would remember as being SMART goals, we use what we call the restorative SMART goals. Restorative SMART goals are S-S-M-A-R-T, the S standing for um, student-centered, uh, student strength-based. Um, and so the strength-based part of that being, if we're going to have a kid repair the harm, then why would we not use that kid's strengths and talents to do that? And so that's our first S. Our, our second one is that the, the action plan needs to be specific, like what is this kid need to do to repair the harm? Um, our M stands for what it's always stood for, measurable. Like how would we know this kid actually did what he was expected to do to repair the harm? Um, the A stands for achievable. Are we actually asking kids to do things that are developmentally appropriate? The R stands for restorative. Like is is this action plan actually restorative or is it just punishment in disguise? Because way too often people think if we just give kids community service, oh, that's restorative because we didn't punish them. But if, but if it wasn't really done in collaboration with a kid, it's still punishment. And so is it really restorative? And then that T is time. Like, is it time sensitive? Like, when will we know you're done? When will you be done by? Who's following up on that? And so we're using uh, restorative SMART goals to do the art of requests. How do we actually ask people to repair the harm and hold them accountable? And so the practices that we've brought in to Connecticut in the schools where I am, if, if you've ever seen Howard Zare's continuum of restorative uh, uh, practices, which I think IARP still uses and, and a few other organizations, this is a build-off of that um, continuum of restorative justice or continuum of restorative practices. It's just expanded. And so we've added practices like mindfulness, respect agreements, peer mediation, uh, collaborative and practice solutions. And then we, we've, we've also added some of the trauma-informed pieces like having calm rooms or a Zen room, having every classroom with a, what we would call a peace corner, which could also be considered a calm room. Maybe trading out in-school suspension for redirection centers or for student support centers. So one of our high schools here traded their in-school suspension for a student support center. 
And so rather than getting suspension, in-school suspension, you get sent to the Student Support Center where we mindfully help you with your stress, we mindfully help you with repairing the harm, we do some reflection work about your behaviors and how to improve them, and we make sure you're up on your studies. And so um, the approach that we're using for implementation is this top-down, bottom-up approach which I think has been incredibly important at having less people fight with us about doing the work. And so if you click on that cool slide with the little arrows, um, the top-down part of this is really about making sure our systems change, our board of ed, our leadership, our paperwork, our referral forms. Um, let's change all that stuff. But let's also have this teacher, student, and parent-led because I think parents get left, left out of restorative practices way too often and we need parents on board. Um, we need students and teachers on board. And so we're training groups of students to be circle keepers and to do the work uh, along with their teachers. And then there's a cool little slide about Hartford that I kind of already explained <laughs> about how we're doing the cohort models and how we're supporting them. Um, and then there's just some cool pictures. We also did some similar stuff in Meriden Public Schools. And so right now we have, uh, we're, where we're doing this work is Hartford Public Schools, Meriden Public Schools, Wyndham Public Schools, Windsor Public Schools, and Cheshire Public Schools, which are all districts in Connecticut. Um, they're all rolling out this particular form of, or this, uh, you know, integrated approach to restorative practices being trauma-informed. And then we left you some cool pictures of some of the people doing the work. Um, and I'm racing through this so that if there's any questions, we could get to them because <laughs> I don't want to have, have people have questions we couldn't answer for them. Um, so I, right. I guess, yeah, any questions? <laughs> <laughs> so I I do have um, some webcast questions here. Um, sure. Sharon from Kansas. Uh, thank you, Sharon, for your question. It's it's great. It's very specific. We were speaking earlier uh, about the language um, of trauma-informed practices and, and also what it looks like, you know, in practice. And she asks, from your experience, would you say that RJ practices are, quote-unquote, trauma-informed practices? Or is it more accurate to say that RJ must and should be done with a trauma-informed lens? What kind of language is accurate when describing the integration from your perspective? Yeah, that's that's a pretty easy one. It's definitely the second part. And so restorative justice in and of itself is not trauma-informed. So we need to do restorative justice work through a trauma-informed lens. And And so what that means is really how we approach the work needs to be aware of trauma, the prevalence of trauma, and how trauma impacts people. And so restorative justice, while I think lots of people are under the impression that it's trauma-informed and that schools who are doing restorative practices instantly are trauma-informed, and that, that is just simply not the case. There's so much more to, to take in about addressing kids with trauma and addressing teachers with trauma Addressing parents with trauma, restorative practices in and by itself is not not trauma informed. It needs it needs that lens added. Mhm. Mm thank you and thank you, Sharon. Again. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, another question. Another web question. Um, 
I'm a teacher who has a disruptive student that is unexpectedly in the middle of class dropping the F-bomb. How how do I manage that? Um, I would want to – so there's two two things, two pieces of, of advice, even though I'm, I'm not a big fan of giving advice. But here's my, my two things out for resources. One, what's letting that kid in uh, – what is allowing that kid to do that? What are the influencers telling that kid that that's okay? Because something about that classroom is telling that kid that he could do that. Two, let's look at collaborative and proactive solutions. That's a great Ross Green case. And so I'd want to know what's up with this kid. Like what's getting in the way of this kid meeting expectations? And so some need is being met by this behavior, and I'd want to know what that need is. I want to know what's up for him. Is that a way of getting attention? Is that a way of coping through something else? And so I'd want to know what's up with this kid. And the easiest way we do that is by building a relationship with him. And so I'd want to know what the relationship is between this student and this teacher. Um, and, and is there something up there? What's that student's relationship with the other students in that classroom? Because is this just posturing? I also want to know how old he is, which I don't think we know that. Um, I, I, my suggestion is look at collaborative and proactive solutions. Look at Ross Green's uh, work around lost at school um, and use that, what Ross Green calls plan B. Use plan B to address this kid. I mean, that's that's my biggest yeah. one. But then you could also circle that class up and ask, well, you know, how, do, how does this affect everybody in the class when one of us isn't following our class expectations? And really start having that kind of thing. I wouldn't, I'd be careful about throwing that kid under the bus, um, you know, proverbially. But, it, you know, why is the teacher responsible for addressing that kid's behavior? Why isn't the class responsible for addressing that kid's behavior? Isn't our classroom a community? And if it's if it's if it's just the teacher in charge of how we all if the if we see the teacher at the front of that room as the police of behavior, then we're not a community. We're lacking tier one. We need better relationships, and so I'd bring better relationships into that classroom. How do we build the relationships mm -hmm. of the students and the teacher in that classroom? Get a respect agreement in that classroom too. That was a lot of answers for one, <laughs> one oh, question. Thank you. Um, and I know we're a little over time, but if you're willing, Joe, um, there's one more question, uh, just sure. a simple one, but I think a really important one. Sure. Um, do you have an anecdote to share? An anecdote of, you know, to like share. pre-implementation, pre pre-work you know, um, with a school, as compared to post, like um, perhaps student-related or teacher-related, like somebody that might have been completely, um, you know, a naysayer about restorative justice. <laughs> All right, see, how do I bit, answer that but, question without throwing any educators under a bus? Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> and since so I can do this because I know this educator and this principal would be would probably laugh if, if he'd probably tell you the story himself if I wasn't telling you. But I do have an educator in, in a Hartford public school who um, he came for his first day of the six day training super skeptical, if not just outright cynical, of 
trauma-informed and restorative practices. I mean, he, he, he was, if, if he wasn't one step away from rolling his eyes at me every time I talked, um, he spent his first two days of the training basically trying to disprove that this stuff was valuable. And by the sixth day of the training, which was, you know, a couple months later, he was completely transformed into a, like, a, a new way. You know, we changed his lens. And so a few, you know, weeks after he finished the training, I was asked to come to his school so he could use technical assistance time. And my job was to come in and do an overview of trauma-informed restorative practices for the staff. And so this principal goes to introduce me to the to the staff, and he starts explaining his own transformation from being a naysayer to, to sort of being sold. And the way that he said it, like, literally he he looked in, at the entire staff and he said, before I took this training, I was an a-hole to my, to my kids. And I was like, what did he just say? <laughs> and, and literally he explained to the, to the entire staff how that punitive way of looking at things really just made him treat kids in ways he regretted. And then he started to explain his experience of going through the six-day training and really diving into restorative and diving into it. And I, I think this principal himself would tell you, I think what he saw in it is himself as a kid. He's like, wait, I was that kid. And now how am I responding to that kid now that I'm a principal? And he's an, I mean, this is an amazing principle to start with. He didn't need a lot of work to be restorative. He rolled his eyes a lot at restorative mm -hmm. as we, we brought it to him. Hmm. But the, the reality is he was a super restorative justice-minded person to start with. He, he insists mm -hmm. on doing the morning announcements in his school every morning. And so it's always him. And he ends his morning announcements every day so that kids start uh, the day with hearing him say, don't forget I love you. You gotta look, wow. you gotta love a principal that says I love you to his students every day. That's awesome. That's wonderful. And, and so I think his sort of transformation, and it's I, I mean there are lots of those stories. I'd, I'd hesitate to tell them so I don't throw people under the bus. Be like, let me tell you about this other principal because if they ever listen to this this recording, I'm gonna be like, yeah, yeah, I was talking about you. <laughs> so I don't want to throw anybody under the bus. Um, right. But I mean, I've definitely well, seen some schools anecdote. transform. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I'm sure there's a lot more of those, um, maybe for another time. Yeah. I, I do want to just, there's one more webcast question that I don't want to leave off. I think it segs nicely into our closing today. And it's sure. from Nan. Thank you, Nan. Uh, <laughs> she's in, it's like Dartmouth. Um, so Nan asks, uh, she says hi, first of all, and she, she asks, what are you finding are the limitations of RJ in schools these days? Or I know a lot of people are calling it RJE or our restorative justice in education. And she also says, um, how is it interacting with the legal system? And then finally, can you update us on your new book? <laughs> that book. Um, limitations, I think, of, of RJ are are that it inherently is missing things like socio-emotional learning. It's, it's, I think too many schools see RJ as a way of responding and reacting to student behavior rather than doing the tier one work. And it, and I think the other limitation to, to, you know, RJE is just, uh, you know, by itself, 
when we try to do restorative justice in a school by itself, it's not inherently trauma-informed. It's not inherently mindful. And so kids are not getting that sort of full – the, the culture change that needs to happen can't happen solely through RJ. It, I think we need the other pieces like mindfulness and restorative justice. I mean, mindfulness and trauma-informed and, and equity – you know, we can do restorative justice in a school and lower the number of suspensions, but that's not changing anybody's privilege and bias and power. And so the equity work also has to be there. If we're not talking about, you know, you know, three groups of kids get disproportionately punished. Kids of color, LGBT kids, and kids with disabilities. And so if we are not addressing the equity pieces directly and talking about privilege and power, then are you really addressing restorative, are you really doing restorative justice? And so if we're just circling up and we're just responding to kids' behavior with circle when, you know, in conference, at what point are we addressing mindfulness, equity, social-emotional learning, trauma? I don't think by itself it can do that. Um, what was the second part of that question? It was about... Um, Oh, how it interacts with the legal um, system. Mm -hmm. um, I, yeah, that's a complicated question, too. It, I think it's really defining the role of school security and school resource officers. And so many of our schools here in Connecticut have school resource officers. Some have moved to just having security guards and security staff. Um, but we need to define their role. And so so that kids are not getting arrested needlessly. And so we need to make sure that, that school resource officers and school uh, security guards are there to do security. They are not there to do discipline. And so where schools are using their school resource officers to do discipline, you end up with a lot of arrests. Because they're going to, you know, that's the tool. If everything, you know, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so, you know, that's what school resources are, you know, that's primarily what they do. Well, I've met some great resource officers, and I think they can be a great resource. There are also a bunch of them out there that are just arresting kids cause, or giving them summons because that's what they do. And so I think it's really, really important that we understand the role of our, secure, our school resource officers and how that works out. Um, otherwise, I think part of our... You know, part of the idea is to prevent the need for us to send kids into the legal system. You know, it doesn't always work. We just had, you know, six kids arrested in a school here in Hartford yesterday. It, that's unfortunate, and, and the idea is to find ways to prevent that. The book, the book is the book. It's got like 150 pages, so yes, I, what Nan's calling me out on is that I, I've been I've been writing a book on uh, trauma-informed restorative practices and all of this work. I've been writing a book for schools uh, for about two years, and it, and it is it's a pretty substantial book. I use it as a manual when I do training, mm -hmm. um, and I do let people read it. Um, but it is just that a draft book that that is coming along and and. Uh, so someday I will finish it. <laughs> so oh, I, I think it's hard to, to write book. it. It's hard to write about this work while you're also off doing it five, six days a week. And so, right. And some of so you just, do need to sleep still. 
<laughs> yeah, and what's interesting is at the you time, said, like in the summer, where I'm not as busy, I I'm not interested in writing. Like I need to be doing the work to feel like writing about it. But when I'm doing the work, I'm too tired to write about it. <laughs> so, you know, it it will happen in whatever it's supposed to. But it, it it's it is coming along, and the book is really it's changed in the writing. Is I mean, the longer I've done the work, that that's what makes writing about it hard. Is because what I wrote a year ago. Like, I know 10 times more than I did a year ago. I know 10 times more than I did two years ago. And so for every month that I do this, I know so much more that needs to be in the book. And and I, no one can keep up that fast. <laughs> I can't. And so it it, it it will come someday. I promise you all that book will get done someday. Well, and in the meantime, um, you are a walking um, repository for so much wisdom. And um, we really appreciate you, Joe, and and thank you for sharing your your story, being willing to share the framework uh, upon which, as you said at the beginning of our conversation, you you had no idea you would go in this direction, and we're we're so glad that you did. And thank you. Um, I I, I have a burning question because I know there's probably a lot of people that would like to stay in touch with you. And maybe some of those people might like to reach out to you to bring you to their community. So um, with your permission, uh, please share how, how you'd like that contact to happen. Sure. People are always willing. Uh, you're, you're definitely uh, welcome to email me or call. And both of those, my email and my phone number are on um, my website, which is my name, joebrummer.com. Uh, you're also welcome to, for those of you that are that want to follow daily stuff about, you know, trauma-informed and restorative practices in schools, along with like what I had for lunch. You're welcome to friend me on Facebook, um, and you're also <laughs> welcome to follow me. Anybody's welcome to follow me on Twitter too, which is just at Joe Brummer, um, and and I'm happy to sort of a lot of what I post is is just school stuff and equity stuff and um, social justice stuff. So. Um, be, beware if you friend me. That's what you're going to get lots of in your newsfeed. Um, but anybody that has a question, you know, I, it, it might take me a couple minutes to get back to you, uh, but I will. I'm happy to send resources to folks. I'm happy to um, share what I've learned. I'm not a real. Um, and some of my friends get after me because I'm not a real pro- proprietary kind of guy, and so I don't really care about owning any of this. I want people doing this. This is the world I want to live mm-hmm. in. And so if people need mm-hmm. resources exactly. or want resources, just tell me. I'll send them to you. Know that it will probably take me weeks to get them to you because I get so many of those emails. But I'm not, you know, I'm not a proprietary guy. I want people doing this work. And so if you need something to make this happen in your classroom or you need a resource, please just I'm happy to reach out and send it to you. Just know that I get those requests often and it takes me a bit to get back. And they've been extraordinary useful here in Colorado. You you did just that for us here recently um, for our school district. So thank you. Um, Anytime. I just I, again I just want to thank you so much, Joe. And uh, I I I want you to hold on. Those of us that are here to, uh, live, I do have some news about the upcoming guests in the next weeks. But um, again, Joe, thank you so much for for being with us. Um, I hope that uh, your work flourishes with this new money that came in from the districts uh, or from the state 
And um, those of you that are in Connecticut, you're you're lucky to have Joe there, and um, hopefully that will continue to congeal um, in those those five new districts that you're working with. So um, thank you. And I just, uh, like I mentioned, next week we have an extraordinary guest, um, or actually a couple guests coming up that I hope you might be able to join us for, and that's uh, Eric Butler and Cassidy Friedman. Cassidy Friedman is the director and producer of a documentary called Circles, which Eric Butler is one of the primary people featured in that film. Eric is a friend and colleague from way back, um, based in the Bay Area and Oakland. His work in restorative um, practices in education um, goes way back, uh, as far back as restorative justice for Oakland youth goes back. For those of you that know, um, I'm sure there's quite a few of you, actually. We have a lot of people on from the Bay Area here today. Um, so a lot of you probably already know about Circles, the documentary. Um, so I'm extremely excited to see that um, on our agenda for next week. And so please join us. That's next Wednesday. Um, that's a, a week from yesterday. And you can find out more about that just by tuning into our emails and a lot of you gave permissions to get email updates from us about our series. So I'll make sure that um, our team get the, gets those out to you. But join us next week for Circles um, and a conversation with Eric Butler and Cassidy Friedman. And then the week following, we have David Karp and some hopeful student facilitators from Skidmore College coming on. So again, thank you. I'm, I apologize for um, the overtime here today, but uh, it's just been a delight to have Joe Brummer with us. Please check out his website at joebrummer.com. Um, like he said, contact him about questions or bringing him to your community. We really appreciate your time and your participation in this series, and we look forward to seeing you again, hopefully next week. And thank you again for being here today. I'm your host, Molly Rowan Leach. Goodbye, everybody.